Today's scripture comes from Psalm 150, and it's printed in your bulletin. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is the word of God. We are today finishing up our series in the Psalms, and we are going to finish where the book of Psalms finishes and end on a note of praise. Uh, psalm 150, it's, it's a collection of, of psalms, or it's the final psalm in a collection of psalms, and uh, most of the commentaries that you read, they say that Psalm 150 is very intentionally placed at the end because it's trying to say something to us. It's trying to communicate something to us, and that is this. The goal of life, the goal of life ultimately is meant to lead to praise, to the praise of God. So, uh, for example, there's this old wise pastor, Eugene Peterson, who wrote a book on the Psalms, and when he reflects on Psalm 150, what he says is this, that all true prayer, when pursued long enough, eventually finds its end point in praise. It eventually all leads to praise. And I find that to be a very incredibly encouraging statement because it means this, that there is always a path in terms of seeing uh, and experiencing the goodness of God and experiencing the praise of God that can lift the fog that we face in life so often. At the same time, his phrase, when pursued long enough, uh, could be a little bit, um, maybe not discouraging, but a little bit of a challenge because it means this, that we have to have enough prayer and enough power to believe uh, in the power of prayer to pray long enough until it reaches that point of praise. And, uh, you know, so Psalm 150, it's placed at the end because it's saying the goal of life leads to praise. Eugene Peterson is saying this, that all prayer, when prayed long enough, when pursued long enough, finds its conclusion in praise. Now, Psalm 1 is also intentionally placed, and Psalm 1 talks about this, how blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates upon it day and night. And, you know, when you read certain parts of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, it's very easy to come away with the impression that uh, everything is basically about obedience to the law, uh, obeying the law. But one commentary says this, that this particular psalm, it shows us that the goal is not obedience The goal is actually adoration. The conclusion is not Psalm 1, but the conclusion is this psalm, Psalm 150. Psalm 1 is basically the start of the path to meditate upon the law of the Lord day and night, but that path is supposed to lead to Psalm 150, praise and adoration. You know, when we make obedience our ultimate goal, then uh, I think what ends up happening is we We have this distorted picture of God as somebody who's a little bit cold, and we have a distorted picture of what our relationship with God is meant to be. But God is not some cold lawgiver who only demands obedience, but God is someone who is beautiful in his holiness, which we sang about, in his glory, which we also sang about. And therefore, uh, we are meant to enjoy the very relationship that we are allowed to have with him in Christ. Now, God's beauty, I think, is ultimately what captivates our hearts and draws us in and therefore praise should be something like a central feature in terms of how we relate to God. Now, C.S. Lewis, he has this really good quote, a really good essay, and it's quoted in a lot of places that talk about praise, but he wrote this book called Reflections on the Psalms, and in this essay, he talks about his personal struggle. He says, uh, one of the things I struggled about with God is that he's always demanding praise, 
And uh, as he's struggling with that idea, he's like, it, it kind of makes God seem like this very uh, vain person who's always looking for compliments and wants his people to compliment him. And as he's wrestling with that, the turning point came for him when he realized this, that all enjoyment spontaneously flows into praise. The world is full of praise, and he saw that, you know what, it's actually the most humble people, it's actually the most balanced people who praise the most. Conversely, it's the people, his words, it's the cranks, it's the misfits, it's the malcontents who praise the least. And therefore, he concludes by saying this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. In other words, what he's saying is this, that if you really want to enjoy something, you don't fully enjoy it until you're able to praise it. Part of the enjoyment of something includes praising it, and we can see how that works when people are praising ordinary things all the time. Isn't that why on social media we have this desire to maybe share things, to praise things online, to say whether it's food, whether it's kids, whether it's a Broadway show or travel experience, when we say this was the most amazing food we ever had or uh, look at what my child did or uh, this Broadway show was so amazing, there's a sense in which it actually completes our joy in it. And so C.S. Lewis, he realizes this and he recognized that the Bible doesn't simply command us to praise God because God is simply fishing for compliments, but the Bible commands us to praise God so that our enjoyment of him might be made more complete. Now there's some challenges, I think, to praising God. And if praising God is a challenge, then according to C.S. Lewis, enjoying God will be a challenge as well. And if we're not enjoying God, I really don't know how we are going to be convincing as, uh, as a church, as Christians, as believers, in terms of saying, knowing Jesus is the greatest thing, or knowing Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, I suspect that the greatest hindrance to the mission of the church uh, is not it's not like our lack of knowledge of the Bible, which I think most of you think. Uh, it's not our, our lack of understanding theology. I actually think the, the biggest hindrance to the mission of the church, at, at least here in New York, is maybe a lack of enjoying God. And therefore, we don't speak or we don't talk about Jesus out of our enjoyment of God. Uh, but the best that we can do is, uh, the second best thing is we just kind of force ourselves to talk about Jesus because we know uh, as Christians we should be doing that. And what that ends up being is it sounds a little bit disingenuous. At worst, it maybe it sounds like a sales pitch. And it's really not the best way to, to share about Jesus. I think if we want to be effective in terms of our witness, our Christian witness, we really have to have the sense of enjoying God, which means, again, according to C.S. Lewis, we really have to have praise built in to our lives. There's a Catholic writer named Thomas Burton, and he has a book about praying the Psalms, and there's this great passage that he has. It's a little bit lengthy, but I think it reads like uh, he's preaching, so let me read it. But this is what he says. He says, Praise is cheap today. Everything is praised. Soap, beer, toothpaste, clothing, mouthwash, movie stars, all the latest gadgets which are supposed to make life more comfortable. Everything is constantly praised. Praise is so overdone that everybody's sick of it, and since everything is praised with the official hollow enthusiasm of the radio announcer, it turns out that in the end, Nothing is praised. Praise has become empty. Now you hear that. Okay, he sounds a little bit cranky, and I get that. But I think there's a lot of truth into what he's saying. You know, if you have a friend who says, everything is awesome, everything is the best, and says that about every single thing, you know what happens over time? Uh, it becomes a little bit empty in terms of everything is awesome, right? Uh, you know, I had this um, 
there was this elder that I knew from a long time ago from one of the old Good News churches, and uh, he, he said this, uh, I, I don't praise people. I, I'm, very, I'm not very generous with my praise of people. And uh, the reason he said that is because, you know, when I actually do praise people, it, it's more meaningful. And if I just praise everybody, then it's not going to be as meaningful when I really do mean it, <laughs> when I do really do praise. So he, he reserved his praise for something that he believed to be worthy of praise. And that's kind of what Thomas Burton is saying. It's like when we are just praising everything and saying everything is awesome, then what superlatives do we have left to praise a God who truly is awesome? And then he continues to write, and he says, It is quite possible that our lack of interest in the Psalms conceals a secret lack of interest in God. For if we have no real interest in praising him, it shows that we have never realized who he is. For when one becomes conscious of who God really is, and when one realizes that he is almighty and infinite holy, has done great things for us, the only possible reaction is the cry of half-articulate exaltation that bursts from the depths of our being in amazement at the tremendous inexplicable goodness of God to men. Now that last line, I love that last line because it perfectly summarizes Psalm 150 and what Psalm 150 is meant to feel. Let me read it again. The cry of half-articulate exaltation that bursts from the depths of our being in amazement at the tremendous, inexplicable goodness of God to men. Another writer says this, it's a, Psalm 150 is a lyrical self-abandonment, an utter yielding to, of self without vested interest, calculation, desire, or hidden agenda. There is a purity that I think comes out when we are genuinely in a moment or a, a time of praise, when we are praising God and we are so lost in the praise of God that we, in a sense, forget of our, ourselves where we forget about our problems, where we forget about what other people think of us. It's kind of, I think, like similar to what a child would do when they get so excited about something. Uh, You know, in my case, in my my child's case, she gets so excited about a lollipop, and, uh, you know, we don't let her eat candy a lot, which was a problem because she went trick-or-treating, so she has, like, this big tub of candy, and uh, every day she's like, can I have a candy, can I have a candy? You know, once in a while we'll say, okay, and I'll say, you can have this lollipop. And she gets this huge smile, and she's just, like, kind of shaking because she's just so excited about it. And she's not really thinking, uh, oh, what do mommy and daddy think about my excitement, about my expression of it? All she's thinking about is the excitement or the prospect of getting that lollipop. Now, I think this. In our best moments, spiritually speaking, when we are in praise of God, that is what praise of God should probably look like, Right? Now, I get we are uh, more conservative, more Presbyterian-ish, <laughs> right, in our praise. We, we're not the type of uh, a congregation that we kind of lift our hands, and maybe we want to be like, you know, a little bit, or that, that's fine. I'm not saying outwardly, but at least within our hearts. The focus shouldn't be kind of on this, like, sense of what is everybody going to think in terms of my expression of praise. But I think in our best spiritual moments, we are not thinking about that at all, but we are so encaptured by the beauty, by the holiness, by the glory of God, that we are simply praising him with this kind of self-abandonment. That's what I think this psalm expresses. Now, this psalm was a little bit tricky to uh, craft a sermon out of because uh, it repeats the same word over and over, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And, uh, you know, there's not too much uh, content in here to, to really reflect upon, and I think maybe the emphasis is the feeling of it when we repeatedly see praise the Lord, praise the Lord. But there is a basic structure here that uh, I want to go through uh, uh, quickly at least. You know, the first uh, part of the psalm, it, it tells us where we should praise. And verse 1 says, Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. 
Now, the sanctuary is where the people of God would worship on earth, and therefore what the psalm is telling us to do is on earth and in heaven, there ought to be praise for God. In other words, there is not one place in the entire universe where it is inappropriate to praise God. This summer, we participated in a prayer march. Biggest issue we had was getting to Berlin. Uh, there was about almost 70 people, I think, traveling. And think about almost 70 people traveling through airports, uh, going from city to city. We went to four cities. And uh, when we were in London, uh, we hit a little bit of a snag where, uh, you know, London, they had a couple of uh, terrorist attacks, so security was very tight. And trying to get 70 people through security, it, it ended up taking a long time. So there was actually a chunk of people who missed the flight. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit stressful. That was probably the most stressful part of the trip. Uh, the missionary that's uh, leading the trip, he asked me to sit down because the, you know, the other guy that was leading the team uh, was one of the guys left back. So I think he wanted me to, like, in the meantime, uh, you know, take charge or take leadership, replace him for, for the time that he wasn't there. So he's like, come, come sit next to me. So I sat next to him. He's like, all right, I want you to do this, this, and this. I was like, all right, I got it. I'll do this, this, and this. And then we're on the plane, and uh, I, he, I don't, he just starts singing to himself, right? And he starts singing, hallelujah, like very quietly to himself. And I, I learned something very important, even just sitting next to him, that even in that very stressful time, uh, the one thing he kept doing was praising God and singing praise to God. Verse 1, I think in a very poetic fashion, says, there is no place, no time, no moment in life where it is inappropriate to praise God. Even in the hardest moments in life, perhaps the most appropriate thing there to do is still to praise God because one, he is worthy of it and that never changes. And two, I think that's what the message of the entire corpus of the Psalms is meant to show us again, that even in the depth of human despair, it leads ultimately to the praise of God. Second, it tells us that we should praise God for his mighty deeds and according to his excellent greatness. You know, we had a retreat uh, in October, I believe, with a those of uh, those who are training as deacons. And uh, before we were praying, one of the things we did was we read Psalm 150. And uh, what we tried to do as we began to pray is essentially we wanted to fill our prayers with the praise of God. Now, at least for me, when we did that, that was a very helpful way to praise because then you, you begin to start to remember all the good things that God has done, all the good things that God is. And as you recount these things and you praise God and you thank him for who he is and what he has done, you actually start to feel your heart turn a little bit to praising him genuinely. So even if you don't feel it at first and you just kind of pray and just recall all the things that God has done, it really is a change of perspective. And perhaps when we are the most discontent, this would be a good practice to just pray prayers of praise and see what happens to our heart. Third, the psalm tells us how to praise in verses 3 to 5. Uh, it basically lists a lot of instruments in which we ought to praise. Now, I think it's saying more than we ought to use instruments in our worship services, but I actually think it's saying this. We should praise God with everything we have. Instruments here, uh, they, they list different aspects of life, so on great national occasions, you would often hear trumpets blasted. We ought to praise God with trumpets. Tambourine and dance, they would be used to celebrate these joyous occasions. Strings and pipes would be used for this simple uh, celebrations. All of these things, all of these instruments, all of these occasions, we ought to use to praise the Lord. Finally, the psalm tells us this. 
It tells us who should praise the Lord. And perhaps this is the climax of what this psalm is trying to say. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Everything that has breath. Now the Hebrew word for breath, it is the same word that is used in the beginning of the book of Genesis when God breathes into the nostrils of man the breath of life, making him a living creature. And I think it's giving a nod to that, that God is the one who gives breath, who gives life, and we are to use that breath and use that life to praise the Lord. Now here's, here's a tragedy of the Bible storyline. Sin enters into our lives. And because of sin, that breath that God gave to man in the garden to fill him with life, sin takes that breath away. And I don't mean it just as a metaphor, but sin leads to death, which literally puts an end to our breath. There's this great book I read a few years ago about a neurosurgeon named Paul Kalanithi called When Breath Becomes Air. Uh, Everybody I know who has read that book cries at the end, right? It's a very touching book. Uh, I teared up. I didn't, you know, tear almost came out, but I was very touched in heart. It it is a very sad book, but at the same time, a very beautiful book, and I, I would definitely commend it to you. But uh, one of the reasons I think people have such a strong emotional reaction to it at the end uh, is, is because uh, the last chapter, the epilogue, is actually written by his wife. So Paul Kalanithi, he's writing uh, this memoir about his experience of having cancer, knowing that he's going to die, and kind of recording that experience and knowing death is coming. Obviously, he can't write about his death, and so his wife, in a sense, completes the story and writes about the, the final moments of her husband's life. And she, you know, he's a great writer, but she is also a, a really great writer. And she, uh, I want to read two paragraphs from that book uh, because she's such a wonderful writer. And I want to read what she says about the final moments of his life. She says this, Warm rays of evening light began to slant through the northwest-facing window of the room as Paul's breath grew more quiet. Katie rubbed, Katie is their, their young baby girl, Katie rubbed her eyes with chubby fists as her bedtime approached and a family friend arrived to take her home. I held her cheek to Paul's, tufts of their matching dark hair similarly askew, his face serene, hers quizzical but calm, his beloved baby never suspecting that this moment was a farewell. Softly I sang Katie's bedtime song to her, to both of them, and then released her. As the room darkened tonight, a low wall lamp glowing warmly, Paul's breaths became faltering and irregular. His body continued to appear restful, his limbs relaxed. Just before nine o'clock, his lips apart and eyes closed, Paul inhaled and then released one last deep final breath. Uh, I've, never, um, I've never been in a room when somebody died and breathed their final breath. Um, the loss of breath, it, it's a tragedy. And I think this story illuminates that. Sin is a tragedy. Death is a tragedy. It is not what God intended in creation when he first gave us breath and filled our lives with his breath, made us alive. Uh, any of you, and you know, perhaps I would say most of us at some point, if not already, we are going to experience this tragedy of death of a loved one. We might even be in a room in their very last moments. And you are going to feel the the pain in your heart. Uh, 
you are going to feel I don't even know what word to use to describe it. It's going to hurt. And in that moment, you're convinced. It's not supposed to be like this. This is tragic. Now, when we feel that, then we think about the gospel and the good news. Because here's what the gospel says. Sin takes away our breath. Sin leads to death. But Jesus, he gives it back. Jesus, through his death upon the cross, through his resurrection, he defeats sin and death once for all. And you know what that means. That breath that is taken away, we get it back. In the new heaven, in the new earth, in the final resurrection. And that's why you have this vision of heaven in the book of Revelation filled with praise and worship because it is the song of the redeemed who have been given their breath back, who have been raised to new life and using that very breath for what it was intended in the first place, to praise and worship God. Now, as long as we have physical breath here in this world, which one day will come to an end, this psalm calls us to use that breath. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord And we know that even though we will temporarily lose it, because of Christ, we get it back. And therefore, we anticipate the praise that we will sing in the new heaven and the new earth. When we see how glorious, how wonderful, and how beautiful our God is. Now, believe it or not, this is a very short message, uh, intentionally so, because here's what I want to do. Um... I wanted to keep the message somewhat short because uh, after we partake in communion, I actually want us to practice this. The psalms are meant to be sung. And we're going to have a a little bit longer period, maybe two or three songs, uh, responding to God in praise. And we're going to heed this call and let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Because you know what? I don't think the Psalms are meant to be like a driver's education class and saying, you know, this is how you drive. I think it's actually meant to say, this is how you drive, now go do it. And I want our series on the Psalms to end in this way too. Uh, Not simply saying, we should praise, but let's do it. We'll do it after we partake in communion. Let's pray together.